Audrey Stratton. I'm Carmen Thorley. And you're listening to Kitten Whiskers and Kanye, the podcast where we go into the history of and take a not too deep look at our favorite things. Yep. Carmen, how are you doing today? I'm pretty good. It was my birthday yesterday, so I'm still kind of riding on that. Thank you. Thank you. I actually saw you yesterday. Audrey brought me a little glass uh, teapot that steeps loose tea leaves right into the water and I actually tried four different teas today because I what? was so excited to yeah we went to the mall and went to a Tivana and Michael got me some tea for my birthday and I tried it out and it was awesome nice 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 Tivana is expensive oh my so gosh like you got the nice stuff I'm assuming uh, yeah it was really good it was like it's a green tea which I was kind of skeptical about at first but it's like this jasmine pearl so the little balls <gasps> unfurl yeah it was it was really good Nice. Yeah. I, so I never really liked floral herbal teas before I tried a jasmine tea and there is something magical about that flower. Yep. I totally agree. I mean, I experienced it this morning and it was awesome. Nice. Yeah. And you actually also recently came back from a vacation up in Washington. Yeah. I went up to Lake Chelan with my old BYU roommates and we did nothing all weekend. (laughs) Oh my gosh. That sounds heavenly. Now I do have to admit I was actually very worried about you at one point because at at a certain point you all there was a picture of you where you all looked very very small Uh and I was worried because there were like six of you sitting on the same lawn chair and so I was like what my yeah my my first two thoughts were oh no she shrunk and they're all two feet tall now (laughs) and then my second thought was no Audrey don't be ridiculous she, in fact, climbed up a beanstalk into the land of the giants uh, and uh, is I think now those in are the both, land of Yeah, those are both logical explanations, not that it was just a giant <laughs> wicker chair. <laughs> no, who makes a giant wicker chair? No, in Chelan, actually, there is uh, something in the air that's produced by the farming chemicals that they have that makes everyone shrink down two feet, like just to two feet exactly. So that's actually what what it was okay 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 see and that's a i mean that's a little bit better because first of all the land of the giants is very 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 high up yeah it's really dangerous too i was worried you were gonna fall (laughs) and also everyone knows that giants want to grind your bones to make their bread exactly it's not a safe place to be it's no it's very dangerous and i mean you shrinking down to two feet tall was also a concern of mine, but I did see you yesterday and you are, <laughs> and I was back to normal, yep. back to normal size. That so polluted very... Chelan air, you know, just, you know, <laughs> messes with your DNA. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So Carmen, what are we talking about today? Okay. Today we are talking about uh, movie scores and movie score composers. Think uh, John Williams and Hans Zimmer. Ironically, those are two of Audrey's kind of least, least favorite, favorite. <laughs> least favorite composers. And if that's surprising to you, keep listening because we definitely have our reasons. I I saw her I saw her point and I agreed with her point. Uh, we will get to those. But yeah, we listened to movie soundtracks at work a few times. Um, we'd either listen to a strictly like classical station or an actual movie score station. Um, but they kind of sometimes got mixed in with each other. Like you'd hear a movie, a popular movie score in um, our classical station and vice versa. And that's actually because movie scores don't really have a genre of their own. They don't have a genre. The people just usually lump it in with classical. And I think, you know, it's kind of the same. I mean, most soundtracks use symphonies. But especially like now we're using electronic music to make um, soundtracks and we're kind of broadening our 
um, our, our sound. And so it is not its own genre, but uh, I would like to... I would like to fight for it to be its own genre. I want to I want to give movie scores their rights. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. I and I'm I'm kind of surprised that a lot of people group those two genres in classical and and movie scores mm-hmm. in together because I grew up listening to classical music mm-hmm. a lot. My dad worked at a classical music radio station. And so for me like I can hear classical music and I can tell the difference between something that was written two, three, four hundred years ago, and, like, the genre that a lot of people consider kind of modern classical, Mm -hmm. where it's just, like, the really mellow piano pieces. I can tell the difference, and I think that the latter is garbage. I'm going to be honest. (laughs) I really hate it. But I do like movie scores, because I think a good classical piece is... It's a conversation. Mm-hmm. It's, it's akin to a conversation, I guess I should say, where there's a beginning, there's a middle, there's an end, and it's different, but it's still cohesive. Mm-hmm. Whereas I feel like modern, you know, in quotes, classical composers really just want to do kind of the a, a more modern... Something different. Well, it's a more modern form of writing where it's like, here's the verse, here's the bridge, here's the chorus, here's verse, verse, bridge, chorus. Mm-hmm you know, chorus in a different key and then another verse. Right. But it's just music. There's no words to it. And that's mm-hmm. boring. To it is me. boring. It is. It's so boring. And so I like movie scores because it's kind of the same as classical. So I, I guess I see why people group classical and movie scores together mm-hmm. because movie scores are there to help tell a story. And there I, were some pieces that we listened to at work where like we could actually kind of narrate exactly what was going on in the movie as Mm -hmm. the score was playing because the action and the music sync up so well. Yeah. Most people will lump movie scores uh, into the genre of classical music because most movie scores are rooted in Western classical music. They're um, carrying on a story very much the way Audrey described. Um, So most of the composers I will be talking about, or most of the composers that we will be talking about today are going to be mostly Western white guys. (laughs) A few international composers, yeah. and there's like two or three that I can think of off the top of my head that I actually really, really enjoy. Yeah, and I mean, but there's a ton I hope of that we get to. Yeah, there's a ton of European ones that we can definitely talk about. Um, I want to start off actually. If you guys listened to the last episode, Audrey gave me a few quizzes, or no, if you listened to the second episode about non-Disney fairy tales, Audrey gave me a few quizzes, um, and I wanted to return the favor. I wanted to give her a few quizzes. Oh no! I wanted to see how good her <laughs> knowledge was. Okay. How the turntables. How the turntables have... Okay. (laughs) So quiz. Quiz time. Are you ready? Okay, I'm ready. Can you name at least five of the most famous soundtracks made after the 1950s? After the 1950s? Yep. Star Wars? Yep. Indiana Jones? Yep. Mm. Oh, no. (laughs) You can do it. I, I believe in you. Just think of... I know. I know I can do it. It's just it's that like, just think under of pressure most, thing. You yeah. Know? Think of like some famous movies. It's, it's Superman? A, yep. I've named... I have just named three John Williams films. You did. I? And I mean, that's... I Is that the point that you're trying to get at? Because no, I was going to say quite. Harry Potter next. Uh, yeah. Harry Potter, John Williams. I mean, I could... You could count that as Alexandra uh, Dayplot as well, because I guess... He that's true. And I have... <laughs> I have opinions about that. Okay. Try uh, to name I'm one say, non-John Williams one. <laughs> I was going to say Pirates of the Caribbean next, yep. which is Zimmer. Yep. 
A few others are uh, Forrest Gump, Jaws, Last of the Mohicans, Rocky, uh, Social Network, or 2001 A Space Odyssey. So, I mean, you, they come, they come to mind pretty quickly because you think John Williams or Hans Zimmer, you know that those are going to be some winners. So the next follow-up quiz is, can you name five famous movie scores from before 1950? Before 1950. I've heard the To Kill a Mockingbird. That is soundtrack. Yeah, that's one of them. Okay. And that's a beautiful one. Oh, yes, That is, it is one that I could probably, like, it's, it's the perfect, like, chill out sort of. Absolutely. Soundtrack. Um, Gone with the Wind? That's one of them, yeah. Wizard of Oz? Wizard of Oz. Cleopatra? Um, not, I mean, that probably is one of them. It's not on my list, but I mean, that's, yes. Okay. <laughs> I'm trying to name, like, the most famous movies. Like, I'm not even trying to I think mean, to of, be like, honest, you're actually, the soundtrack. <laughs> yeah, well, you're actually doing a lot better on, on this one. And maybe that's what was because you're trying to think of famous movies and not the soundtracks. Because it's hard for, it's hard for some soundtracks before the 1950s to come to mind. Because, yeah, actually, yeah. I mean, movie scores weren't even a huge deal until the 1950s. They actually started off in like the early or late um, 1800s. And they were first introduced to cover up the sound that the projector was making in the theater. So it wasn't because they wanted to add another element. It's because they like, they hated the noise of the projector just, you know, which is totally understandable. Most theaters brought in like in-house pianists or orchestras even to follow along with the movie to play what they needed to play. Gottfried Huppertz actually um, wrote orchestra versions of his soundtracks and converted them to piano versions if if the movies were shown in smaller theaters. So there could still be music, but he made two he made two orchestrations: one for orchestra and one for a piano. Oh, yeah. very cool! Very very cool. Um, I, this was this was before the 1950s. Yeah, this is like 1900s, early 1900s that this is oh, happening. Oh, okay, okay, yeah. okay. So like with the silent films then. Oh yeah, for sure. Yep, these are the silent okay. films. So the soundtracks weren't actually synced up with the movies themselves. They just had people. Um, they had an orchestra in the theater and a uh, mm-hmm. director watching the movie and directing the um, orchestra as he watched. And actually, um, orchestras would learn little snippets of, I mean, maybe four or six or eight measures of music that would make the audience feel a certain mood, like sad or love, or this is what we play during a chase scene, or this is what we play when the character is scared or something like that. They had pre-written music. Then you could hear the same music then in two different movies? Yeah, you would probably... Yeah, I mean most a lot of a lot of uh, directors would use the same chase music in a wide variety of movies so yeah you'd probably hear it and it was mostly they weren't trying to be super original they were just trying to invoke uh, an emotion into the viewers is there like a first soundtrack ever that's been recorded or was it just kind of one of those things where like over time it evolved and so you can't really put it it's kind of hard to put a pin on it some notable first like really early on scores would be for Nosferatu by Hans Erdmann um okay Nosferatu (laughs) yeah okay (laughs) this is gonna sound really really cheesy I have only had nightmares about two like on-screen monsters ever in my life (laughs) And first of all, I don't like scary movies to begin with, but even the ones that I do watch, generally it like scares me for a couple of days, but I don't have nightmares. Yeah. I had a nightmare about Nosferatu after watching that movie. I, okay. It's so old. I, old like, movies are kind of scary though. 
Yeah, I don't know what it like. I don't know if it's like the practical effects rather than the CGI stuff, right. or like like I have to admit, my only exposure to Nosferatu is that SpongeBob scene that I already know. You know what I'm talking <laughs> Nosferatu. about? Nosferatu. Nosferatu. That's the only, like. So I know what he looks like, and I know he's kind of like a hulking, weird, not vampire quite thing. But yeah, I it's apparently it's a pretty scary movie, but it was also it's, one of the most notable first like full scores to a movie. Yeah, yeah, it's a. I would recommend that you watch it because yeah. you've read, you're reading Dracula or you've read Dracula, I'm, right? Yep, I'm trying for sure. Yeah, it's actually probably the most like accurate adaptation of the book. And because of copyright laws, it wasn't supposed to be Dracula. Like that's why he was called Nosferatu and mm-hmm. it was supposed to be different. Yeah. But you watch the story and you're like, <laughs> it's a Dracula. Dracula. Yep, it's this a, is Dracula. Same guy, right? Yeah. I mean, Dracula is the first vampire. And so it's kind of, well, maybe not the first, but the definitely the first like notable, mm-hmm. really famous vampire. So it's kind of hard to fall away from that. Yeah. Yeah. Character. Which I mean, may have contributed to why I was so scared was because Maybe. Dracula is a scary book. Yeah, it is. It's pretty, it's spooky. <laughs> it's That's spooky. a spooky one. So in 1927, The Jazz Singer is the first sound film to come out. And once mm-hmm. films began having sound after this, soundtracks weren't as popular because, you know, movies were fine. They were finally able to hear the dialogue. So they were like, okay, like, let's, let's finally, let's finally hear some voices. Who cares about the music? People care about what the actors are saying, you know? I feel like after, you know, talkies, I guess, is the word for <laughs> yeah, them, started up, that most of the movies that have kind of lasted the longest and been the most timeless are the ones that had these extensive song and dance numbers. Yeah. And I, I had never really thought about it before, but was that kind of replacing soundtracks or other sound effects for a time? Or were there still notable like music composers that did just music for background for scenes. Yeah, no, I, I, I understand what you're saying. Uh, So that will actually really easily segue into our next section, which I want to talk about the Oscars, which is hard to not talk about when you're talking about movie scores, because I, I get exposed to a lot of movie scores that I'd never heard of watching the Oscars and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Um, So when you have a, when you have a, a movie with a whole song and dance kind of soundtrack to it it is a lot more popular it would seem than the scores that just kind of help blend the like just blend in the background of the movie and just support the story and actually the award for best original score in the oscars has had like a big tumultuous history in what it was called Um, they split it at one point into dramatic score and musical score so i mean compare something like the lion king to uh forrest gump you know, uh, it's kind of hard. It, it, yeah. It's really hard to judge those two because they're t- completely different scores and they're both amazing. But how do you award one over the other? You know? Right, right, right. Um, so, I mean, the award began as a uh, best scoring in 1935, but it originally just morphed into there's original score now and there's original um, song. Right. Right. Yeah. Which uh, I I have such a hard time. With the best original song yeah. category, especially over the last few years, because it feels like it's just all over the place. And sometimes it's like, ugh. there was that one year that Enchanted had like four out of the five <laughs> nominations. Yep. And it's because the system is like, from what I understand, the system is just like so messed up about, like, it has to be an original song, it has to be in the movie, it has to have so much playtime. Yeah. And for whatever reason that year, 
Enchanted was like one of the only good. Yeah, like, I I remember that. Yeah, movies sure. that had songs that hit all of those qualifications. Man, and <laughs> that is that is just one of those soundtracks that is hard for me to listen to apart from the movie. You know. So I, I mean, it does make me happy to hear that at least once upon a time there was two separate like one. I might be interpreting this wrong, but it's like a musical soundtrack then, like one where there's a yeah. lot of like song and dance and then one for the non-musical movies? Well, yeah, that's exactly... Is that kind of what it ended yeah, up being? Yeah, they were called okay. dramatic score and musical score. Okay, yeah. okay. Um, yeah, that makes me happy. Yeah, I know. Um, so we don't do that super often anymore. They will occasionally bring out the a, a more specific award for scores if they feel like it's a little bit more specific to what they want to award it to, but it, you don't see it very often anymore. You just see original score. So it used to be that way, um, but it changed a little bit. But yeah, Lion King is the best example that I found of that because it is... It's an awesome soundtrack. So that was one of those uh, Disney movies that won that. There are actually a few other Disney movies that had won a few Oscars. Can you, another quiz, can you name five Disney Renaissance movies that have won Best Score Oscars? And define Disney Renaissance if people didn't listen to uh, that episode (laughs) about that. Disney Renaissance movies were the movies that were released roughly between 1989 and 1995. So... I mean, I'm assuming that you just want me to name them. Pretty much, yeah. Not a huge uh, window yep. for for wiggle room there. Beauty and the Beast, surely, absolutely, is like number one. Yep. Lion King, mm-hmm. Little Mermaid, mm-hmm. Aladdin. Yep. One more. And would it be great? Great Mouse Detective? Nope, not quite. Not quite. It's Pocahontas. Pocahontas. Yep. Okay. And uh, bonus, if you can name the composer for all of those movies. For all of them? Except for Lion King. Alan Menken. Yep. Nailed it. Audrey knows her Disney, man. I do. <laughs> yep. Alan Menken also did Tangled, which I love. He did Enchanted, which, you know, kind of the same movie, kind of. Little Shop of Horrors, <laughs> which is my favorite musical. It's the only musical music that I'll listen to outside of actually watching the musical. And Newsies, interestingly enough. Um, so the most awards for the Oscars, uh, if actually went to, you'd guess it's John Williams, right? Right. He actually has the most nominations, <laughs> um, but not the most not wins. the most wins. The most awards oh, has no. gone to Alfred Newman, who did things like Wuthering Heights and Hunchback of Notre Dame. He is an older composer for sure. Uh, he was it was in the earlier stages of movie scores, so he was kind of one of the go to guys to go to at that time. Like he's the guy that did your score. You know, he worked with Charlie, kind of like. Uh, the older version of Hans Zimmer. Yeah, pretty much. It's just, you know, that he's going to do a good job. And at that point, communication was a lot harder. So, you know, you, you know, you know, he's, he's talented. Guy. So he's the guy. You, you don't have a lot of other ways to be exposed to a lot of other composers. So he has the most awards. Uh, he worked with Charlie Chaplin and with Gershwin's music, actually, and Irving Berlin's scores. He played with, um, he played with scores a lot rather than composing original scores, which is something that I will bring up later. Most nominations without a win is Alex North. And that just bums me out. He, (laughs) he just does not, he actually got an honorary Oscar because he lost so many times. (laughs) They gave him an honorary Oscar. I know it is kind of a bummer, but yeah. Like, cause we all know that there are the Oscar awards given to like actors or actresses or like songwriters Mm -hmm. where they get the award for something where you're like, that was not your best, but you know it was given to them because it's like, sorry, you haven't won yet. Right? I, I yep, yep. I kind of, so, I kind of to not even to not even get that 
to not even get that, just no. to be like, here's some here's honor, it, it, here it is anyway. On its own. You know, I actually watching Leo win his first Oscar, I kind of felt that way. I was like, okay, actually, yeah. he probably did deserve it, but maybe even if he didn't, I'd hope they'd give it to him anyway. <laughs> right, right. And like my earliest memory of like knowing that that was what was going on was with what's his name, Randy Newman, mm-hmm. writing the. Uh, because he's been nominated for so many songs. Yes, he has all the new awards, have. and then and then he won for the Monsters Inc. song, which like <laughs> it's not a bad song. It's just a weird one to but win for. It's kind like, of, it's a weird one to win like, for. Maybe, yeah. Like and maybe even to- Toy Story over that, you know? Uh, sure, yeah, and yeah, he got for Monsters Inc. And I was still pretty young at the time, and I had I remember having thought of like. It's because he's been nominated so many mm-hmm. times, hasn't it? Yeah, he really has. And I actually think that I see him a lot more often than I do because the Newmans are just all over the place. You know, mm-hmm. you have Randy Newman and you have um, Alfred Newman and you have Thomas Newman, my personal favorite, who is um, a runner up for one of the most uh, the most popular movie composers. But going back to this North character here, I have never heard of him before, and I feel like I should apologize. No, okay. Because it sounds like you have a really high opinion of him, but I've never heard no, of it's him. Totally, no, it's totally fine. So Alex North, he was a composer, a movie score composer um, in the 1950s when modern film scores were uh, starting to start being popular. You know, he did things like Streetcar Named Desire, which has uh, jazzy, atonal vibes. It was really unique to... Um, classical music scores that were usually written. He also did Spartacus, uh, Death of a Salesman. He was commissioned to write the score for 2001 A Space Odyssey, but Stanley Kubrick rejected his original scores. He ended up taking pre-existing classical pieces and putting them in the soundtrack. If you've seen that movie, it's a Beethoven or a Chopin piece. Actually, it's like 15 minutes of spaceships floating through space and stuff and in the background you hear Chopin's classical piece and I mean it was just gorgeously done but that's one of the most renowned soundtracks in the world and most of the compositions aren't even original to the movie it kind of evokes this sense of something that's a little ethereal but real at the same time because there are pieces that everybody knows but superimposing it on space which not everyone knows. Very, very few people know. It makes it familiar and warm, kind mm-hmm. of. But it also just kind of just inspires. Yeah, yeah. That's a, you know, inspires that's a great like way to describe the it. grandness that is space. It really, it really was a beautiful soundtrack. I just, I'd never thought about the fact that most of it isn't original. The most notable parts people remember are um, not even original scores, just really well-placed classical pieces of music. Alex North was a really early movie score composer. Another one of those is Bernard Herrmann, who worked with Alfred Hitchcock and did Psycho and Vertigo and The Man That Knew Too Much. And those were really important scores because they were really unique, kind of unpretty scores. They weren't, they were trying to invoke like discomfort and fear and, you know, even claustrophobia in most of these movies. And they really, really worked if you've seen, if you've seen any of those. Yeah. Psycho is such yeah. an incredible movie and the soundtrack just makes it all the better. Yeah. I remember when I first saw that movie, you go in and you think it's going to be one movie. And then in the first 15 minutes, it's like, uh, no. <laughs> we're going to change this. Yeah. And for some reason, there's that moment of like, when it changes so abruptly, 
the stakes just get that much higher. Mm-hmm. And it's fascinating to me, and, and the music definitely lends itself to that right. feeling of, of unease. And, you know, you're just kind of sitting on edge because you're like, well, what is going on Yeah, then? that's what good movie scores do is they, they help carry the story on. And I'm, to be honest, I can't think of... I can't think of the t- like any tunes from the score from a movie like Mm-mm. Psycho. I remember the e e e part, which yeah, was yeah. super you know innovative or whatever. But I don't actually remember any tunes of the actual soundtrack. And I, I mean, I don't even think that's a sign of an unmemorable soundtrack. I just think it means that it was so well assimilated in the movie that it just kind of it wasn't even an entity of its own. You know, it right, just yeah. added to the whole. Another composer that took classical pieces and put them in the soundtrack of a movie was Wendy Carlos, who did A Clockwork Orange. And it's a, another Stanley Kubrick movie, funnily mm-hmm. enough. And this composer actually twisted up compositions of Beethoven's. And it was it was a really creepy, futuristic sounding soundtrack. It was a really good one. And in fact, <laughs> this is my favorite little tidbit. David Bowie used the soundtrack to announce his Ziggy Stardust shows. <laughs> Oh, really? <laughs> I love this so much. And I mean, if David Bowie gives it the thumbs up, I'm kind of, I, I'm kind of inclined to assume that it's just great, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so some scores are have unoriginal pieces in them, but when you have to compose a soundtrack from scratch, there are a lot of steps that you need to follow, and there's uh, processes of making a movie score. So the first one would be spotting, uh, where you actually watch the film and make specific like specific notes for musical cues. So like in in movies like Inception, uh, the Mm-hmm. The guys would read the storyboard and make notes of where they'd want the music to start, where they'd want it to swell, where, you know, what kind of music they'd want it to be and stuff like that. And that's usually how it goes. Uh, an E.T., however. It starts. OK, I'm fascinated by this. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. It starts with the storyboarders. Wh- whatever, whoever the composer wants to be working with to be hearing the story so we can know what kind of music he's going to be watching. So um, in Inception and in Brokeback Mountain, the guides read the storyboard and wrote down the musical cues. Um, but in most movies, I know, isn't that interesting? But in, in some other movies, they will just be watching the movie and making notes about where they want to start. Yeah, yeah. And that's how I had imagined it would be like mm-hmm. the movie's over and now the composer gets to watch it and... Basically, I mean, I didn't assume that they would have free reign necessarily, but I also kind of thought like they have a huge amount of pull into right. this is what's because uh, they know what they're doing. Yeah, right? yeah they do. <laughs> so, so you spot the movie and then you uh, sync. You're going to start syncing, which is pretty much just in-depth spotting. You'll write down certain parts mm-hmm. of the scenes that you want. That's the super mathematical part where you have to make sure you have a certain amount of measures and time before you start making the music sound scary when the monster comes out, you know? Right. Yeah. Because like with those jump scares in horror they movies have to be well timed. Like, yeah, a half a second off mm-hmm. can really throw off the whole surprise. Right. Totally. And actually um, during recording there, there are some composers that will be watching the movie while they're conducting the orchestra and recording and Mm -hmm. they will, you know, do a little indefinite hold on a certain chord. And then when they see that the monster comes out, then they'll, you know, give the cue for the whole orchestra to do its little scary thing. Uh, The next step after spotting and syncing would be writing, which is just exactly how it sounds. Um, Pen and paper or most composers these days will use uh, MIDI type programs, Mm. which um, makes it easy for scores to be done by one person because you can, you can just 
say exactly what you want this to sound like, and then you hand it to an orchestrator, which is the next step, the orchestration. I learned that a composer is often separated separate from the orchestrator. So the composer will compose the music and like the tunes and stuff, but the orchestrator will split it into parts for certain instruments. Interesting. Yeah. And I don't know why that wasn't like, that wasn't clear that that's how it had to be before. But I mean, I just assumed most composers said, okay, this is the violin sound. This is the piano sound. This is the cello sound, you know, but that's the orchestrator's jobs. And Ennio Morricone, a notable composer did the good, the bad, and the ugly Hateful Eight, most recently, he was actually really strict about orchestration and would hover over the orchestrator and wouldn't really let him have a lot of free reign. <laughs> but most of the composers, when they're done writing the music, they give free reign to the orchestrators and are kind of done at that point. Interesting. Yeah. Okay, so how many orchestrators get to also receive an Oscar then? I know. That's, isn't, isn't that so that weird? It seems like the harder part. After I'm learning, after, I know, I, it seems like it'd be the harder part. I mean, maybe the hard, I, I think that the composing part is harder because it's the being creative enough to yeah, it's the creative make thing, good but music. Then you also have like the technical aspect of it. Yep, the orchestrators it. do all and of I the busy work. Yeah, you have to be, I think you have to be just as creative to say, like, okay, this is better sound for cellos. I think so, too. This is better sound for whatever. When I learned that they were separate people, I wanted there to be an an Oscar for orchestrators, too. Not just composers, but for orchestrators. I, I, I might not know much about it, but maybe they are included in the little group that runs up and accepts the award. They just never really get to talk because it's the composer that, you right, know, yeah. is the most notable person up there. And the last step after orchestration will be recording, and that's just pretty obvious what it is you record. Some composers will do this while they are watching the movie. They will want to get the timing right with it. Do you know about how long it takes for this process to get done? Because I can imagine that if you aren't super, super precise about it, you'd have to go back and you'd have to re-record probably whole sections. Yeah, you know, I don't know how long it it is, but it's got to be a long-winded process. I mean... Most of these studios will have the right equipment, so that's not really the concern. The concern is just getting it perfect, especially when you have perfectionist composers. You yeah. know, I mean, some like breathing down your neck or something, or if you yourself are a perfectionist, it'd be really hard to get it just right, you know? Something that I learned from this was that movie score composers, you, I, I, I guess I assumed they have free, free reign to write whatever they want, but I mean, it's, it's kind of hard work to be watching a movie and, tr- and to try to find music that matches that mood and to invoke the kind of emotions that you want to, to the viewers, to the people that are watching the movie. And right. so most composers are really, really compliant to what the movie the movie itself is doing. They'll change the music for the movie. One person that uh, didn't do that, though, uh, John Williams wrote the score for E.T., uh, and after mm-hmm. Steven Spielberg heard the score he actually changed the scenes some of the scenes in et to match john williams score and that was the only time that i ever saw a director give to a a composer you know yeah and i mean john williams is a is he's a good composer he is actually (laughs) okay okay all right (laughs) we've had we've had this discussion before and i i i know we kind of we both kind of see to the fact that, yes, he writes good themes and he's very memorable, right? Yes. Um, if not just a little bit too much, um, just a little bit too much. A little. It's so much. It's so much. It really is. And there's something to be said for soundtracks that are memorable. And I don't want to discount that at all. Somebody had pointed out to me recently, like, okay, go ahead and, you know, hum the 
Indiana Jones theme. Okay. And it's easy. It's like right off the top of the head, yep. right? And then somebody said, well, can you think of the Avengers theme? Which is like, it's a huge franchise, right? right. All of these Marvel movies are these huge franchises. And I cannot think of a single score from any of them. Okay, so that it's it's interesting that you bring that up. A lot of recent Marvel movies have been getting flack because their soundtracks aren't memorable. And mm-hmm. people want a memorable soundtrack, apparently. But in the Avengers, um, for example, they... I believe they used some of the music that was already recorded for other Marvel movies. They don't put as much importance on an original score for movies like that when it's just background noise to an action scene. I know, it's interesting. Dramatic movies, I mean, you have to have an original score. You have to have... Like the original orchestration, but with, um, you know, superhero movies, it's kind of like photoplay music again. It's like, it's turning into a, okay, this is a chase scene. Yep, this is a standing on top of a building talking to the girl you love scene. And this one is letting the villain monologue music, you know? They have predetermined clips that you choose based on the emotion that the scene is portraying. Okay, so yeah, like, it's disappointing. But I feel like there is a really good middle ground, and John Williams does not hit that middle ground. Right. I, and that is why it is so upsetting to me, because I feel like his movie scores are another character. And it's just, it drives me crazy, because I don't need another character in this scene. If it's, you know, Indiana Jones talking to the villain of whatever movie, I don't need another character in there just being like, hey, hey, mm-hmm. hey. Hey, I'm here too. Hey. Listen. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I get it. Yeah, it, they they just are they're a little loud and a little look at me instead of in actually trying to focus on enhancing the story and the characters themselves. Yeah, and you know? I feel I feel the same way about Hans Zimmer too. And I know that they're the two that we talk about the most, mm-hmm. but like I just feel like it's another character that's just like like there's a Guy Fieri kind of character walking along Darth Vader, and he's like, here he comes, here yeah. he comes, the bad guy. How can you tell that he's the bad guy? It's because I am in the minor key. I am in the minor key. I'm in the minor key. And I'm like, Guy Fieri, what are you doing yeah, here? Yeah, like, I didn't want, I want to be looking at Darth Vader, not this, like, music that's popping up all, yeah, I totally understand what you're saying. Um, so, uh, John Williams was famous for making those uh, character themes, right? Another one famous mm-hmm. for doing that was Michael Giacchino uh, in Up. He had a theme, the Ellie theme, the, you mm-hmm. know, the sad wife from the beginning theme. And he also did it in Lost. I mean, all the, there's a huge amount of characters in Lost and they each had an individual theme. And I remember because I was obsessed with that show when I was younger and I yeah. made playlists of this is, this is Jack's theme and this is Olivia's theme and this is, Ben's creepy theme and stuff. And that I think is one of the most impressive things that a composer could do is to just kind of write, uh, write each individual theme for each individual character. And Michael Giacchino, I think is just the absolute best at that. But John Williams is another notable one that did it. Yeah, I guess I, I just, I feel like there's a difference between part of the score being part of the character Mm -hmm. that it's it's corresponding with and being another character and that's why i feel like john williams is writing another character into the story Mm -hmm. whereas giacchino is like this is a part of the character now totally so back to what we were saying about marvel or about movies not really seeming to care about original scores so much anymore so those are actually called temp tracks temp tracks that are reused the um you know for certain emotional scenes and stuff and you and i have actually 
um, posited, not even posited. I mean, if you guys listen to it, you can hear it too. But we've, we thought that the Hans Zimmer probably did that with Pirates of the Caribbean and Gladiator. He used his old, he used his old theme and his old, almost exact recording and put it in pretty much the exact same kind of situational scene in yeah, so he reused it for Pirates of the Caribbean. Right. And I think when you hear that theme, most people will think of Pirates of the Caribbean. It's just so funny that it was in Gladiator first. And I actually really encourage whoever's listening to go and find the uh, Pirates theme and then the Gladiator theme and just give it some time and you'll start to hear like, oh my gosh, it's the exact same tune. And yeah. honestly, to me, it I, I don't know if he does it a lot in his uh, scores, but to me, it's just kind of a, it's kind of a little lazy. Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it is. It's super lazy. In fact, I don't think you even have to listen to the whole score. You can probably go onto YouTube and be like gladiator versus pirates of the Caribbean theme. And you should be able to find Mm -hmm. like a maybe five minute video of here's this part. That's exactly the same (laughs) as this part in the other movie. Yeah. Someone's pointed it out for you. So all you have to do is just Google your question pretty much (laughs) to Hans Zimmer's credit. I, I think interstellar is one of the, one of the best sound recent soundtracks. Um, it's that organ music combined with the space of the, it was, it's just an incredible, it's an incredible soundtrack. And every time I bring up how, how much I dislike Hans Zimmer, Michael always has to bring up interstellar because it's kind of the one that keeps me from saying like, Oh yeah, he's, he is kind of great, you know? (laughs) Yeah. The organ music was just so grand and, it just sounded like the human experience, you know? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm going to stick to my guns and say one good soundtrack is not a good composer make. Okay, but. all right, that, that's totally fair. <laughs> and, you know, maybe we'll, I, I, I think I agree with you more than I don't. It's, it's, it's hard to say that Hans Zimmer isn't a good composer when you do know that there are some notable things. The theme of Gladiator and Pirates is a good theme. Just, it is. Just it's the fact that theme. he used it twice um, is <laughs> so a little annoying. concerning. Yeah, it's a little it's concerning. so annoying. Hans Zimmer is a, he's top five movie score composers of all time on IMDb. Um, do you, Audrey, here's another quiz. Do you think that you could name the other four? Oh, of all time? Um, yes. Yep. I mean, this is according to IMDb. So think about, think okay. about that. So like what general yeah. users would say. Would Alex North be one of them? Um, no, he is not. Oh, no one, no one knows. No one knows who Alex North is. I didn't when I started researching this stuff, but I hope everyone now just thinks they, I just want his name to go. I want his name to be remembered. You know, he did so much. Yeah. Okay. I'm going to go ahead and say Alan Menken. No, actually. What? But he does all the Disney movies. I know. I know. It's really surprising. So, I mean, you have Hans Zimmer. Think about, think about the top. So, uh, John Williams would be the second oh, one, Oh, absolutely. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I've already mentioned the other guy's name. Alexander Desplat? No. Oh, that's, that's a bummer. He's like know, easily he's, one of my personal top three he's favorites. gorgeous, for sure. It's your favorite, it's your favorite Pixar movie. Oh, Michael Giacchino. Yep, Michael Giacchino. Yes. Um, so, and then we have um, Howard Shore, who did Lord of the Rings and Silence. Oh, okay, yeah. Silence of the Lambs and Philadelphia, Aviator. Um, and then the last one would be James Horner, which I recognize the name, but I could not. Can you? I I could not name one movie that he did actually. 
Yeah, I can't either. <laughs> he did Braveheart, Pagemaster, Titanic, A Beautiful Mind, Avatar, the blue Avatar, that is. Apollo 13, Jumanji, Zorro. He's a big name. Oh, he also did... Oh, I haven't heard of any of those movies. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're... Don't worry about them. They're kind of lame. Are they like indie films? <laughs> Art house films? It's the underground. Yeah, Avatar was a, um, actually, it was first premiered at the Sundance Film Festival, and it got great reviews and just kind of like skyrocketed from there. Yeah. So oh. Avatar, I'm surprised I'll have you have to check heard. it out sometime. Yeah, there are a few others. Okay, I'll have to add them to my list sometime. I think my favorite is do you know that dinosaur movie called We're Back? Yes. <laughs> he did that one too, just randomly. <laughs> Oh my gosh, it just makes me laugh. Other notable ones were Thomas Newman and Alan Silvestri, who did Forrest Gump, Mm. and James Newton Howard, who did um, King Kong and uh, Dinosaur. He's a really, he was a really good one too. Okay, so then who gets the Academy Award then for Best Soundtrack when you've got movies like The Lion King, where Elton John did all of those songs, and he was the one like singing a lot of them. Yeah, yeah. But then you also have, like, Hans Zimmer that wrote the background score. Because that's obviously, like, a mix of the two genres. Yeah, sure. Did they both receive an award? Or, like... So the Elton John probably won the award for best original song. I mean, because Elton John is the name that comes to mind when you think of Lion King, right? Yeah. So there, I don't think of Hans Zimmer. No, you don't. Um, So there actually are some bands that have written scores specifically for movies, not composers, but bands. For example, the Beatles actually uh, wrote the soundtrack for the movie Let It Be, and they won an Oscar for that one. They wrote that and they performed it. So they get credit for both of those parts, you know. Um, Another one, (laughs) I. Do you remember, do you remember A Walk to Remember? Do you remember that movie? Yes. Do you remember the Switchfoot songs in it? <laughs> I dare you to move, like the teen yeah. angsty stuff. Yeah, so that, that's another example um, of a band primarily doing the soundtrack. Jack Johnson did it with Curious George. Uh, explosions. I love that I know, movie. I know. And the soundtrack is just adorable and so perfect. And say what you will about Jack Johnson, but he was just perfect for a Curious George movie. Yes. <laughs> um, Arcade Fire did Her. Uh, Radiohead did There Will Be Blood. Miles Davis did Lift to the Scaffold. Uh, Simon and Garfunkel did The Graduate, of course, with Mrs. Robinson. And actually, this next one I'm really sensitive about. Uh, Trent Reznor from Nine Inch Nails did the soundtrack for Social Network. And that is the soundtrack that beat out how to train your dragon no that was extremely upsetting okay i show your hurt i show your hurt with that. yeah we that, that we love that soundtrack no. guys we love it it is gorgeous it so and much. unique and just perfectly complements the movie and i remember listening to the soundtrack for social network and it was just little beepy pop boopy thingies <laughs> And it's supposed to be kind of futuristic because Facebook is pretty much just a symbol for, like, you know, moving forward into the future and being connected with people and computers and networks and, you know, nervous systems. what about my Vikings? I know. What about the Vikings? I I thought it was such... Man. My baby... My baby Vikings. Like, I... And their dragons. (laughs) I just... It was a really I, surprising I one. For some me. recognition for my baby Vikings. I know, and to me, it just seemed like not a, not as much work was put into the soundtrack for Social Network as there was for How to Train Your Dragon. But I just I don't think that's a super fair comparison for me to make because now people are making soundtracks 
on their computers, like alone. You don't have to have this giant orchestra to do this anymore. You can do this yourself at home. Anyone can, you know, it's just a matter of being recognized if you're talented. The social network was such a minimal soundtrack and just didn't have that grand feeling that How to Train Your Dragon did. So I thought it was completely unfair. But for a soundtrack like that to have won was a pretty big step for that, you know, electronic type of music to start becoming a a thing. (laughs) I can appreciate that. In the most, like, dictionary definition sense of the word appreciate. Sure. <laughs> I don't like it. I don't agree with it. But I can appreciate that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's taking a step forward in that direction. Yeah, yeah. And I, I really hate being, you know, the old man that yells at clouds. But I think that for as long as I live, I'm still going to prefer the orchestra soundtracks. Sure. Me too. I, I, I just, and especially knowing because there's a composer and an orchestrator now, it just, the work that goes into those mm-hmm. are... It's just such a huge amount of work. Uh, so do directors still like giving love to classical composers then? Because I would love to see John Powell do more stuff. And I know he does still have mm-hmm. plenty of work, but like, are there composers that directors still favor? Or are we moving more in the direction of here's a person that's really good on the computer? Right, right. So there, yeah. So um a really one of the first notable ones is Hitchcock and Bernard Herman, which I mentioned earlier. And they were just, they worked together a really long time. And Herman's scores were really unique and kind of freaky. Another one that is really clear is Williams and Spielberg. I think two mm-hmm. super recognizable names in the movie industry. And they're just best buddies when it comes to putting their music and their movies together. I wonder if I'm just going to look this up really quick. Cause have you heard about ready player one? Um, no, Okay, so Ready Player One is the next Spielberg movie that's coming out, and it's kind of a big deal because the whole aesthetic for it is the 80s. It's supposed to take place in the future. Um, In 2044 Mm -hmm. is the year that I think it's supposed to take place in, and it's, like, awful. The future's awful. The future's dystopian. But because the creator of this online world called the Oasis just is stuck in the eighties and like he falls on the um, autistic spectrum and he was really hung up on this, this eighties culture. Right. Mm -hmm. So even though it's like 75 years past that, everybody is like, we love the Oasis. We love the creator of the Oasis. So everything is going to just be like totally eighties themed. Mm -hmm. And so of course, if you're going to get a director for that, who are you going to get? Steven Spielberg. He's got that 80s aesthetic yeah, down, Yeah, he right? does. He, he made all the good 80s movies. It's kind of a big deal that Steven Spielberg is directing this because of his roots in all of those 80s movies. Yeah, and for sure. He's mentioned, I think, in the book. It's been a little bit since I've read the book, but I think he is actually mentioned because of all of the notable things that he did in you know, the late 70s up to the, the late 80s and... I was just really curious about that because it it would not have surprised me mm-hmm. if John Williams were also yeah. the composer. Yeah, I mean, yeah, they're the they're buddy buddies. I mean, yeah, they they've done a few things together, and then you have um, Danny Elfman, who kind of Tim Burton favors him, and Tim Burton favors mm. a lot of people. He likes certain actors, and he likes certain composers. He knows what he likes, and he doesn't really like to deviate from that. Yeah, he's very much. I I see. Tim Burton in the same way that I see like Wes Anderson in that like you're going to go see a Tim Burton film and you know what you're going to get out of it and it may not be super different than what you've seen from him before Mm -hmm. but 
It's enjoyable. Right, right. And actually, uh, Wes Anderson also likes the composer Mark Mothersbaugh, who also did Connie with a Chance of Meatballs. So Wes Anderson also favors composers as well as actors. Now, we mentioned at the beginning of the pod that we were going to talk about a couple of international composers as well, because we have been keeping it very Western right. and, and even like United States centric. Yeah, yeah. And I do want to talk about... You know, give some love to yeah, absolutely. For example, so I mean, I'm Joe Hisaishi who does all of the yeah, yeah. <laughs> Ghibli films. Yeah, I, I love him. Yeah, gorgeous, gorgeous composer. Um, yeah, I think the Totoro soundtrack to that one is just the most touching to me. His his music just it just makes me feel like I'm I every, like the world is full of possibilities and that everything is magic. Mm-hmm. You know, um, he's a wonderful composer. There's also Javier Navarrete, um, who is from Spain, he did Pan's Labyrinth, which was just kind of a really oh, weird movie yeah. with a really weird soundtrack. But it worked. It worked, you know. It worked so well. Yeah. Maurice Ja, I don't know. He's French, you know, so I try to use my <laughs> very limited French experience to say his name right. He did uh, Lawrence of Arabia and Dead Poets Society. Hans Zimmer, of course, is German. Nino Rota, who is Italian, he did The Godfather. All right. So to close out, we just want to we just kind of want to talk about our favorite composers. I, we've given our opinions throughout these composers that we've been bringing up. But Audrey, uh, wh- who would you say is your favorite composer? And then I'll ask you what's your favorite sound like your actual favorite soundtrack. For me, I think it's a tie between Alexander Pla and John Powell. Mm-hmm. And I feel kind of bad because it's not even necessarily because of like the whole body of their work, although they do both do very good jobs, but it is because of one specific work that they have done each. And for me, it's John Powell because of the how to train your dragon movies. And it's Alexander de because of the DreamWorks film, Rise of the Guardians. Oh man. And I know it's a movie that nobody has seen and everybody looks at it and they're like, what is this movie? There's Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, Tooth Fairy. Yeah. Like, what's going on? What What are you even watching? I've been meaning to but watch that. I had no idea he composed that. Yeah, and it is so beautiful. And there is a song at the end that the music is actually part of the soundtrack. And you go back and you listen to it and you're like, oh, okay, like there's a lot of these themes there. And it's like this really grand, swelling theme mm-hmm. of dreams can come true. <laughs> <laughs> they can. They can come true. And I love it so much. So I, I went ahead and I answered your second question there already. But I do love those two mm-hmm. very, very much because of that. So yeah, that, what about you? That How to Train Your Dragon one is a pretty... It's it's close to my favorite soundtrack. My So my favorite composers, I would have to say it's a tie. Like, it's a tie between Michael Giacchino and Thomas Newman. Now, we talked about Michael Giacchino before. He did Lost... He did, he did mm-hmm. up. He did my favorite Pixar movie, which you had mentioned oh, earlier. Right. And I'm afraid that most listeners may think that it was up that Carmen was referring to, but mm-hmm. it was actually Ratatouille. Very, That's my favorite Pixar film. And I, I do. He almost made the cut when you asked right. me about he, my favorite he composers. Did an excellent again, job. He did an excellent job with Ratatouille. Just has that like, just lovely French evening kind of feel really romantic and, Oh, it's just gorgeous. I think I'd have to say Thomas Newman is my favorite over Michael Giacchino, if not just for the soundtrack for a series of unfortunate events, which I remember, I remember one time watching that movie and then falling asleep and then waking up to the uh, music that plays over the menu on the DVD. And I just remember waking up and just feeling 
I, I could, I could just see these little particles in the air that was the music that was playing. I could almost just like touch this weird piano heavy floaty kind of soundtrack that he, he oh my gosh I just he's gorgeous and he actually is really piano heavy in most of his soundtracks he also did Finding Nemo and Wrote to Perdition and mm-hmm. he he definitely favors piano but usually brings in a huge string orchestra just these really big sweeping movements oh I just think he I think he's got to be my favorite and I think Series of Unfortunate Events has to be my favorite soundtrack now I do want to make an observation here most of the movies that we have named as our favorite or as having our favorite soundtracks are kids movies. I know. Okay. I know. And so like, I, I just, I kind of want to delve into this for just a minute. Do kids movies have better soundtracks? The music that I, the music that I hear in kids movies. I mean, when I'm watching a kid's movie in the first place, I'm in a kid ish kind of mood. And I really, I kind of want to be taken away into these worlds where, you know, this music is just like, anything can happen and like you're a kid again and your dreams are they can come true and everything i I think uh the mark mother's did a soundtrack for cloudy with a chance of meatballs and there's one song in there that just is the most grand huge orchestration and it's it's in a kid's movie and whenever i try to show that song to someone they're always like oh it's from cloudy with a chance of meatballs like they almost don't take it seriously but it's almost they're almost better they're yeah yeah. Well, and like I said about the um, Rise of the Guardians soundtrack, honestly, uh, hey, when we're done recording, I will look up that Cloudy of the Chance of Meatball song. I want you to look up Still Dream okay. from from that movie. And when you're done crying, get back to me. Okay. Um, I, you got <laughs> about it. what you thought yeah, of it. Uh, I'll okay. return and report. Yeah, Rise of the Guardians. Okay, I will remember that. Yeah, I'll, I'll give you details about that later. Yeah, there is something about, I don't know. I think I think soundtracks that are with animated movies have a lot more freedom as animated movies visually do. I think they can mm-hmm. they can narrate scenes that wouldn't be happening in real life that, you know, if it were a live action movie, that music would be out yeah. of place because it's not it's not as, you know, crazy as a cartoon and it's not as anything can happen as a cartoon, but when you have the music that's accompanying a movie like that, it just, it has no bounds. It just does whatever it wants. And I think that's why it's so intriguing. Yeah. And animated movies kind of suffer, I guess, in the first place from not having actors doing all of those like nuanced expressions. Right. That's something that the animators have to try to do. But because of the limitations of animation, they can only do so much without being like over the top, you know, Tex Avery style. Yeah you know, shock where the eyeballs are popping out of the head. Yeah, yeah. And I think that music really adds to that, and it kind of makes up for the lack of ability to include those nuanced sort of expressions. I totally agree. I totally agree. Well, thank you, Carmen. That's been a really insightful and informative bunch of information on yep. movie soundtrack composers. <laughs> I I do like them, but it's more of a like kind of passing interest, you know, right. where if I'm in the mood for something that has no vocals, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> I do really like movie soundtracks, but yeah, it's been it's been really informative. Yeah, so this you. is definitely a more informational episode. I had I, I had so much fun researching this one and learning about like the process of movie scores. And I just have a, a bigger appreciation for the work that goes um, into movie scores. I mean, there's just a whole process of 
it's not just like composing music. It's composing music to match something, which I think is just so much harder. Well, thanks for listening. My name's Audrey Stratton. My name's Carmen Thorley. And this is Kitten Whispers and Kanye. And make sure to tune in next time. <laughs>